Real estate is small business. That's a huge part. If people don't think about real estate as small business, it is small business. You need to know how to be efficient, how to cut costs and market. I knew that part of it. So that saved me, but I didn't know anything else about real estate. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know how leverage worked. I didn't know how to talk to a banker. I didn't know how to talk to a broker. I didn't know how that everything I was doing was selling. I was selling myself in, from every angle. And if I could talk intelligently with people, the deals flow. And I know that now. If I can talk intelligently with a broker, if I can talk intelligently with a seller, if I can talk intelligently with an investor, your world opens up and you can build a real estate company that can make you millions of dollars. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. I have Nick Huber with me, the sweaty startup for round two. We cover a lot today. Uh, Nick has literally gone from 100 followers to 100,000 followers in the last six months. He's one of the most honest guys on Twitter, and that has created a ton of value for him. It's also created some interesting experiences, which we talk about. But most impressively, he has been buying self-storage up in the Northeast and has gone from a few million dollars in real estate owned to almost six, will have almost 60 million a year from now. He currently has 12 properties under contract. He has raised all of the money for those properties off of the folks that he's met through Twitter. And we just have an awesome conversation on entrepreneurship, how to create value in self-storage, how to provide value and content to people online, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy this second episode. Uh, Nick's become a good friend of mine. We've had a lot of fun uh, getting to know each other and uh, somebody that I really respect. So enjoy and thank you for continuing to join me on this journey. Nick, thank you for joining me today for round two, my friend. Thanks for having me, Chris. A lot's happened in the last six months. We've become a lot better friends. Uh, Your Twitter account's gone from 100 followers to 100,000 followers, and you've sold a business and you bought a ton of real estate. So let's talk about it today. Let's start with the business. You sold your first sweaty business, uh, student self-storage business. What what happened there? This year has been, actually 2020 was an emotional roller coaster for that business. Uh, we went from, you know, usually doing about 7,000 students in May to needing to do that many in March with no notice and only uh, half of our staff hired. So we basically... I got very involved in that business for the first time in three years. We tried to negotiate some contracts with some major, major universities who were stuck kind of sending their students home for spring break uh, with no notice. And the kids would have rooms that were just, you know, full of stuff unpacked and everything. So we basically flipped our business model on our head and worked our butts off for two months and packed up these kids dorms with FaceTime using FaceTime. So our whole business model shifted. It was complete hell for us. But we had a decent year and got through it. And when we were approached, we, we'd actually been in contact with a company that ended up buying us for, for a couple of years prior. And um, it finally made sense for me and Dan to, to move on, start doing re- real estate only. Was there was there like a moment where you looked at Dan and you're like, it's time to sell? Yeah, I think it's I think it's Twitter. 
we had we got access to LPs for the first time in our lives. So we didn't have outside capital to grow our real estate holdings. And we needed that service business to spit off its half million a year so that we could grow and buy a couple properties every year. And all of a sudden, we had an opportunity to liquidate for very low seven figures, just to hair over seven figures. But that was enough to give us a 10% co-invest on a lot of storage. Yep. So we took took the money and now we're raising a bunch from Twitter. And honestly, we sold it because of Twitter. How long How long did it take you to sell? And, and you said you had talked to the group for a couple of years. Did you just call them and say... Let's go. And did you did you have to nail a value, or was it pretty easy to figure out? We had a pretty good year in 2020. Um, usually, we clear about 500. This that year, we doubled that. You know, and because of all the contract work in very specific areas, and uh, just did more of it. But um, so they were pretty interested, and we offered them at the at the same price. It was basically one one times earnings that year. So yeah. we wanted it. We wanted to get the deal done. Yep. So yeah, it took all, all together took about three months and. It was still stressful, but my business partner, Dan, handled, handled almost all of it. So I didn't do anything for it. He, he's a badass. That's awesome. Who bought it? I can't tell right, right now. I just don't I, I don't have I don't have a lot to gain by saying the name of the... It was, it was a pretty big company. It's making a run to go public soon. Yeah. I don't know if they want to announce it. Maybe you might be able to go on our website and figure it out, though. Yep. Cool. All right. We're, let's just get into Twitter. Like, legitimately, I think when we did this six months ago... You might have been like a couple thousand followers. You're now at a hundred. It's it's changed your world a bunch. Let's talk about how much it's changed your world. It has totally changed my world, man. I I, I can't believe it. Uh, some of it's not good, obviously the, the the phone addiction and the dopamine hits that you get from every single thing you say. Twenty five thousand people reading it in five minutes. That'll do something crazy to your ego, right? Yeah. But it's it's been incredible. I've done probably a hundred thousand dollars of self-storage consulting now, like very small amount of time, high value work. We have the LP connections now to raise. I'm, I'm pretty confident that we could raise $20 million of capital in the next two years from the people that we know now. And, um, kind of launch, launch a course. And my target is to, you know, sell a half million in, in that year one. Like on the hundred thousand dollars of self-storage consulting, is that, how does, how do you earn that? Is that 500 bucks an hour? Well, they, they actually, they pay me 2,500 bucks and they're looking closely at a deal. So they're about to do a storage deal. They want to make an offer price. And I get on the phone with them for an hour. I first send them a a Google drive link and it's got my entire playbook in it. It's got my models, my due diligence lists, like how I think about operations, all the tools I use. And then my, you know, my offer templates, everything. And they do, they do a ton of homework, probably 10 hours of homework before our call. And we get on the phone for one hour and talk through the deal and, and talk through the underwriting and tell them how the underwriting works, what they should pay depending on their situation, how well capitalized they are. And uh, they walk away uh, ready to ready to send an LOI and get, get going. And I saw your tweet the other day. I think it was Drew Pearson. He's our, I think he bought his first or second and he was your first consulting guy. The people that have gotten my consulting are are badasses. A lot of them. Like we're <laughs> talking about people who have run, run small businesses, do a lot of real estate. So they show up through they're ready to go, man. They are not messing around. So, you know, the, yeah, Drew, Drew's kicking ass and several other people have bought properties too. So it's awesome. And you said you could raise 20 million bucks. And and this is where we can go kind of back and forth on this because I think we've added three or 400 investors this year that we've met through Twitter. Are these people just reaching out to you kind of through DMs and then you're connecting with them uh, and building trust with them? Or like, how do you think about that? 
Yeah, I, I'm very careful about soliciting because these are this is private shares, and I don't want to get in trouble, and I don't frankly need a bunch of people who don't kind of know me well. So yeah, it's in the it's in the direct messages. They send me messages saying they they like what I'm doing and they want they want some self storage exposure, and we start talking. We set up a call and I send them more about what we do and ask them a bunch of questions about what they do. Um, is that is that how it works for you as well? Yeah, uh, they reach out to us. We send them a uh, a copy of our deck, and I pre-recorded a phone call. I was having the same phone call for thirty or forty-five minutes with every single uh, new person. I was taking ten or fifteen a week, and so I basically recorded. I came into the podcast studio and just recorded everything I go through on a call, and so we have folks listen to that first, and then I talk to them after and. We usually have a more meaningful conversation because they've already heard kind of the the pitch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my, mine's been a balancing act too. I, at the beginning, I wanted to get in contact with everybody, have a call with everybody, but I found out that I was wasting some time because people didn't like my structure or they didn't know how it worked. So I do send a deck first as well. I don't like to do that, but it's better than doing 15 hours a day straight of calls, which I've done a couple of those days and it's emotionally draining. Dude, it is. I remember you posted like your a screenshot of your calendar one day and it was like 15 calls in a row that's brutal that was a brutal that was a brutal day <laughs> learned a lot learned a lot from that scheduling this app but you raised like two or three million bucks that day so i guess it was worth it we oversubscribed our first deal man we had a 2.65 million dollar offering since we last spoke and i offered it at a 10 prep and a 50 50 split with a 2.5 percent acquisition fee which i thought was pretty aggressive uh pretty good terms for me and i'm not returning any capital and um, just the appetite was insane. And we oversubscribed it by four or five times. And basically, I just stopped sending the deck to new people or I could have oversubscribed it more. But it's it's crazy. The, the appetite for yield is just insane. I don't. I, that makes me sound so arrogant. I realize how that makes me sound. But the, the appetite for deals that actually cash flow and actually are, are decent deals with the low risk and not an insane amount of leverage is, is crazy. I know. Dude, a zero interest rate world. It's going to push people starve for yield. You know, I don't know what's going to happen in the public markets. They just seem to go up. But that my my gut tells me that doesn't end well. And then with inflation and everything else, I think real estate's going to find a home for a lot of people. And we're also going through at the same time a bunch of people that have never had access to real estate. Now they do. It's a humbling experience when you realize how greedy you could potentially get and how you know, you could basically chase and throw offers and buy everything. And that just doesn't, it shouldn't be that easy. Yep. It shouldn't. Yep. You wrote a thread maybe a month ago, kind of the thread heard around the world. That was also kind of a needle mover. Uh, it was published on the Morning Brew. I think you gained thirty or 40,000 followers in like a week. What happened there? Yeah, that's the thread that uh, supercharged Twitter. But yeah, I don't know. I just started... You know, I, I write about a lot of these concepts and I take notes on a lot of these concepts and I get I hit little creative spurts and there'll be weeks where I just don't have it and I can't write any threads, I can't write any tweets that are worth reading. And sometimes I get energized and it flows. And I sat down for four straight hours and tweeted, like I think it was like over 100, 111 tweets or something like that. And I went to turn my phone off and went to bed and woke up in the morning and there was... There forty thousand people had liked it, and six million people had seen it. And uh, I had one hundred and fifty DMs, and it was absolutely crazy. If you get to a hundred thousand, is the next goal a million? 
I don't know. I want to hear your points on your thoughts on this too, because I'm in my flow when I'm writing and teaching and, and communicating with people. And I am loving diving through this course. And I think really the person who's learning the most is me. I'm learning the most by tweeting and getting people's feedback, but it's Twitter's becoming kind of a shittier place when you get more followers. There's more mean people. I now have like three or four people who it's their sole mission in life is to shit on me on the internet. Yep. Um, I have a prick Huber. <laughs> but, uh, it's crazy. Dude, but I will tell you this. The way you've handled the prick Huber situation has been a lesson for a ton of people. You've handled it gracefully. You've kind of gone along with it. And as an outsider looking in, it's actually been kind of even more impressive of how you've handled it. And the truth of the matter is the guy behind Prick Huber that has nothing going on in his life and has the time to to do that says way more about him than it'll ever say about you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Chris. I don't I didn't know what to do about that stuff. You I have no idea who it is. I have a couple hunches, but no, I don't know who it is at all. And yeah, there's there's some people who I can tell are really don't like what I have to say on the internet. And I did a lot of thinking about it and a lot of deliberating with my business partner. Like, Hey, look, it's getting risky now, right? Like what I'm doing on the internet is a little bit risky. There's not, there's now lots of, we had now more to lose by putting everything out there on the internet. And I talked to my wife about it and I just did a lot of thinking myself and I decided to just lean into it and I'm going to be myself and I'm not going to be one of those accounts that turns into a fortune cookie. I'm going to say things that nobody can shit on because they're so generic and boring that nobody's ever going to disagree with me. I decided that, you know, the people who disagree are going to unfollow me and the people who like the way I think about things are going to, uh, you know, connect with me a little bit deeper. That's yeah. the goal, I think. Dude, that's awesome. And when you think about your strategy, it's it's literally just being yourself and saying the things that are uncomfortable and not a lot of people uh, would be willing to say. And, and I think it's shifting my uh, point of view on a lot of it. Um, I'm getting more friends now who are from the tech world. And I think my, just the access that Twitter has brought me is insane. The people that I can talk to, the meetings that I can take. I did a one hour webinar yesterday with my idol, Jack Butcher, who I was like following from afar, looking at his growth. Like this guy is absolutely insane. Maybe someday I could have coffee with him. And then two months later, I'm on a webinar with 500 people with him. And it's just what, what Twitter has done is, is crazy. How do you meet these people? Do you just DM with them? Do you do are you do you reach out? Do they reach out? You know that that thread where I recommended a lot of people who to follow that kind of got a lot of stuff of you know five five or ten days ago. I think you were one of the people that I recommended yep. to follow. And so many people were really thankful that I did that. And they reached out and just said, Nick, I really appreciate it. Like we should catch up sometime. And these were the badasses that I included on there because I thought they were badass. <laughs> <laughs> Jack is. What about you? What what are your goals with Twitter, Chris? You're up to twenty thousand now, and and, yeah, you know, I'm I'm assuming you're having fun with this media stuff. Yeah, I uh, I don't know what my end goal is. I mean, with the podcast, it has allowed me to meet incredible people. I really truly believe that we're living in this shift where, even like a couple years ago, being on Twitter all day long or Something like that when you're, you know, when you're at work would have seemed like you're just being distracted. But I really think about it. It's as much about connecting and meeting really cool people. Uh, but it's work. I mean, we've met three or four hundred new investors. We have done, I think we're on our second deal from somebody that we met off of Twitter. 
brought you the deal. Wow. Yeah, the podcast is growing 22% month over month for like the last year. And like we've always talked about, if you block enough, set up enough mutes, and I block, I mean, I have so many blocks on on there, so mm-hmm. many mutes. It can actually be a pretty pleasant place to hang out. If the word mm-hmm. Biden, Trump, you know, COVID-19, any of those words that are meant to bait people uh, are in a tweet, I can't see them. And I never mm-hmm. engage in them. There was one night I engaged with a guy because he basically said if, if you know, if you voted for Trump or you were a Republican, you know, you're a, basically a domestic terrorist. And I just said, you know, do you actually believe that? And I think that was the only time in the last two years that I've ever gotten even close to politically because I can't see any of it. Um, mm-hmm. People might think I'm a saint. If I actually saw that stuff all day, I don't know if people would like me as much. Uh, yeah, it's it's brutal. It is brutal. So my goal is to keep meeting really great people, com- continue to help it, use it as a tool. Uh, for business, also to share and kind of help people. Um, I think that's why you've gotten, you know, so valuable is the the value that you're able to provide to others. And you realize really quickly that we're in these insulated circles where we think everybody knows everything we know. And you realize really quick, they don't. And then in the same token, there's so much I don't know. I'll log on to Twitter and read something and be like, wow, I've never known that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't want to turn this into a mentoring call, but you, you are where I want to be. Okay. You have, you have built a company with, what is it? 25 people now that do everything from source the deals, to underwrite the deals, to buy the deals, to do the improvements on the deals, to operate the deals, to sell them. Yep. That is where I want to be. I, love I want to build, I want to build a machine that can buy, you know, maybe not 150 like you do, but maybe 10 or 20 or $50 million of self-storage a year while I don't have anything to do with that. I mean, I still will because I, I love it, but I want to build it to where it could happen. How, when did the shift happen from when, okay, the floodgates are open. Mm-hmm. I feel like for me, I'm stumbling upon opportunity. Now I have $30 million under contracts, 14 properties. Funding is going to be work, a lot of work, but easy. I'm not stressed about the performance of any of the deals. Like it, it, the pieces are lining up, like it's all ready to go. How did you go from, okay, we were onto something big. It's industrial real estate. This is what we're going to do. I'm underwriting the deals. I'm doing a lot of the work. We have a team of five. What were the key steps or maybe even a mindset shift that took you to, to where you are now, where you're, you're, you can sit back and make podcasts and talk to LPs and do the fun things in the, in the company and everything else happens. Yeah. Well, first, um, one, I appreciate that. What I would say is, um, you know, there. It, I did that podcast the other day on like staying small or scaling into a platform is one, just knowing what you want to, to do. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't realize they want to build a company or they don't realize that they actually want to be small and do one or two deals a year. The second was uh, really changed when I met my partner, Jason, who had been at a really big company. Uh, he had seen teams grow. I knew in my heart, I don't like sitting in meetings. I don't like setting up processes. I don't like operating. I don't like that kind of stuff. I did it for 10 years unknowingly that, you know, I would be stressed, but I'm such a motivated and ambitious person that I would just kind of power through it. But I saw myself, you know, where I was most unhappy at work was 
you know, when I wasn't doing the things that I was originally good at, which was, you know, putting together deals, selling a vision and all that stuff. And so I kind of made it a mission over three or four years just to say, I need to replace myself. If I really want to get to where I want to get to, I have to replace myself in all these different areas. I can't asset manage anymore. I can't acquire anymore. I can't be getting my bank loans anymore. I can't do this. And but then you and then if you run a budget and you're like, well, if you don't want to do those things and you want to hire someone to do those things, then this is the type of like the type of revenue and the type of the amount of deals you need to be doing each year to make that sustainable. And in my head all along, that was kind of the goal was I will be I will be much better for this company if I've delegated kind of all of these things away. And Jason was the person that helped actually put the team together and you know, get processes and systems set up. It allowed me to be more the idea creative guy, the marketing and branding and vision guy. But it's one, it's it's not easy. It's tough. But two, I just knew all along that if I was going to be my best for that company, I had to get everything off my plate. Not everybody's like that, though. Some people like being mm-hmm. involved in all that stuff. But I'll tell you, if you will like being involved in all that, don't expect to be in a position anytime soon where you can start doing other things. So mm-hmm. I don't know. You just need to start chipping away at what are the things you don't like doing. And look, when you're first starting out, everything's fun and you like doing everything, but you're going to get bored eventually. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. That that means it's time to elevate. Um, I don't know if I answered your question directly, but it was just a mission of mine to become irrelevant. And I'll say one more thing on that. Brent Bashore who was kind of the guy that inspired me to get involved on Twitter, you know, two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. He was always just talking about like, the job is to become more and more irrelevant. And at first I was like, what do you mean? I'm the CEO and the founder. I need to be the most relevant guy in this room. And Mm -hmm. it's like, as long as... It's kind of a humbling thing to say in here. For sure. As long as you're the most relevant guy in the room, it means you haven't hired a good team. It means you haven't put talented people around you. It means everybody's always going to depend on you. And if that's the life you want, great. But there's not a great company out there that you could go look at that's like some founder CEO with a bunch of people around him and he's making every decision. That's just, that doesn't exist. And that's why Brent Mm -hmm. always says small companies don't stay small on purpose. It's usually, you know, people in the driver's seat that try and have their thumb on everything. It's hard to get comfortable when you need to write that or or pay that salary of, you know, more than what you're making to 150 grand or... 200 grand to get that talent that can do what you need to have happen. That's the hard part. But I will say this, every single time I've stretched and I've hired someone for more than maybe I was comfortable paying, but that had the skill set, it has 100% increased top line and value of the company. It is never, it's not an expense. Great people are assets. They're not expenses. That's a great, that is a great, great, thing because I'm I'm about to make a stretch and hire somebody who I know is a badass and I know will take us to the next level. But sucking up that monthly check is going to suck for a minute. It will. But then if you look in the mirror and wake up and go every day, Nick, go with all that off my plate and this guy here, am I capable of of making up that incremental uh, revenue that I need to cover that? And if And if you can look at yourself and say, yes, go for it. And the truth is, even if you look at yourself and say no, it puts a little more fire under your belly to go make it happen. You'll make it happen. Mm-hmm. You're the type of person. But great people are assets. Nurture them, grow them, and they keep producing. They, they'll produce more for you than any piece of real estate you ever buy will. Oh, man. I love it.
That's the mindset shift. They will. That's, that's the shift. That's that the is the shift, dude. Shift. We always look at assets as like that piece of real estate that you're buying. Go hire someone that's great at acquiring that can find you 15 deals in a year. You're going to tell me that that's not more valuable than maybe one asset that you buy in Erie, Pennsylvania. <laughs> you yeah, that person a million a year and it'd be worth it. That's right. Man, I love it. Okay, I'll, uh, I'm, I already got some notes taken and I'm glad this is going to go live because I'm going to listen to it again and take some more. We'll keep doing them. But first, let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, VP of Sales at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. We saw this really big shift where, you know, Today, if you're an investor, whether you're a high net worth investor or you're an institutional investor, you have a lot more options if you want to invest in real estate as an asset class compared to maybe five or even 10 years ago. And with the kind of proliferation of options, one of the things that that happened was that as an investor, you start to have a lot more control. And with control, you can make more demands. And with those demands, you can place those on your managers. And while that might make life difficult for some managers who aren't ready to adapt, one of the key demands is, hey, we need more transparency. Like I need to know if I'm going to give you $100, how is that $100 doing? Where is it invested and what is the return on my investment? You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjuniperquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E juniperquare.com. And now back to the show. Clubhouse, do you like it or not? I don't. I don't like it. Um, I think it's great for some people and their models, but for me, my time is really sensitive right now. I'm taking on five major projects, and the thing about Clubhouse is you can sit on there and waste three hours, and, and you feel like you didn't didn't take a whole lot away from it. Yeah, I did a podcast with somebody yesterday. They made a good point. I just right now there's still a lot of the country that's not doing shit, and they're sitting at their home all day, and you know. Mm-hmm. We ain't doing that in Texas, but there are a lot of there are there are a lot of places that are still doing that. As soon as the world opens back up, I just don't see people having two, three, four hours at a time to sit and and listen to stuff as, as like they can right now. Um, not saying Clubhouse will go away. I think you're underestimating how much free time the average American has. They watch five hours a day of TV. That's true. I'm not saying Clubhouse is going anywhere. I think it's going to be you know it'll continue to evolve. I think paywalls will start getting. I'm a bull in the value. I just don't I just don't love the experience myself. For sure. Kanye and Elon are talking like next week. Maybe I'm just, you know, I don't even know what this means, but I would pay 25 bucks to 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 listen to that conversation or to, you know, pay for the last 20 minutes of a conversation like that. I think setting up some paywalls and making it a little more interesting might deliver mm-hmm. some, a lot better content. Yeah, there's something really sexy about it happening live whereas Joe Rogan talks to all those people and, you know, people listen to it, but they wouldn't pay for it maybe. But, but yeah, something about it happening live makes it cool. Yep. Let's take a step back for a second. This was a Twitter question. If you weren't buying real estate right now and assuming you've already sold your other business, is there something on your mind? And maybe it's this media business and this content uh, learning machine. What would you be doing? Do you know? Uh, do, Do I already have cash or not? If I don't have oh, cash, yeah, you have yet, cash. I'm starting a service. If I don't have any cash, I'm starting a service business. 
Okay, well, let's let's say if you don't have cash versus you do have cash. Yeah, if I, if I don't have cash, I'm starting a pest control or a uh, home service business that I think I can scale up really quick. And I'm going to do a pretty in-depth analysis of maybe 20 or 30 mid-sized cities, not major cities, but mid-sized cities of where I think the competition is weak and the ad spend is low. And I'm scaling up a pest control company to 20 million in three years, I think. I love it. And you're raising your prices along the way, right? Uh, the whole time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I learned, learned my lessons there. Dive into that for a second. You're like the biggest proponent on that. And in, in a minute, what does raise your prices mean? It's basically if, if you are too busy and you always have a full schedule, your prices aren't <laughs> high enough. Yeah, there, the, there's an entire subset of the service business economy, lawn care, deck builders, you know, whatever it is, anything, especially business to business, you know, contractors, framers, drywall, whatever. They operate booked out six months. They're booked out six months at any given time. They don't have any, they don't do any marketing at all. And they make, you know, the owner takes home a hundred grand a year. And he's really always struggling to pay his employees enough to keep them. He's always struggling to, you know, retain and, and recruit new employees. And he basically has himself a job where he's, busting his ass for not very much money. And he doesn't even know. He doesn't even know that with a website, a Google My Business location, a little bit of advertising spend, he could do the same amount of work and charge three times as much money because he's charging guys half of what he should be charging them to do the work. And when you raise revenue by 50% and you're operating on a 50% margin, it triples your profit, triples it. If you, even if you, raise, if you raise revenue 25% and you're operating on a 50% margin, that 25% increase in revenue is a 33% increase in your profit. It all goes straight to the bottom line. And there's a lot of people doing sub-market work right now because they haven't kept up with inflation. They haven't kept up with how hard it is to hire people, the huge shortage of people that are out there working with their hands doing things, especially if you have some skill. So yeah, the people like us, we love being able to hire those people. And we love that they know us and that we can pay them and that they can do good work for us. But we know that if that person was gone and we needed to hire somebody else, to fix our overhead doors on our storage facilities or remodel or build out an industrial complex, we would need to spend twice as much money and it would still be worth it to us. Yep. What if you had money? Well, then I'd be in real estate. If I had money coming in from a real estate portfolio that funded my lifestyle, I would build a media company and I would put out a bunch of educational resources around small business and real estate and do podcasts and I would tweet. Um, so I guess I'm already kind of living that dream, but I just don't have enough time, as much time as I would want for it. I was going to say, you're you're kind of building a media company almost parallel to what you're doing, uh, whether you know it or not. I am. I'm serious about it. I'm, I'm prob- I probably spend of my, you know, I've been working 70 hour weeks for three months for the first time in a long time because I'm of the, I'm of the impression that if you're an entrepreneur, there are years where I'm not going to find a deal. And there are years where there's not going to be an opportunity. And I need to be comfortable laying on a rock and feel okay with myself. And then there's going to be years where that gazelle is in the field. It's a big, bad gazelle. And all I got to do is get off my ass and run out there and chase it down and kill it. And it'll feed my family for generations. I feel like that's the situation I'm in right now where I have an opportunity, this little window in time where nobody's buying all these storage facilities. The big players aren't after it. The REITs aren't rolling them up so I can go out and buy seven cap deals and turn them into nine cap deals. And every one I do is going to be worth 3 million bucks to me 10 years from now. So if I can do 10 a year for three years here, 
it's it's insane. It's insane. So I got to get off my ass and, and bust it. But I also have this little opportunity to build some educational resources and share what I'm doing. I'm, I'm I think it's making me a lot better at what I'm doing by trying to teach it. Even right. if I'm not an expert. You've been working on this uh, real estate course. It's like 150 pages. Walk us yeah, through. I don't want to get too sales oriented. I don't want to tell everybody here to buy it. It's no. because I, honestly, it's not for everybody. I'll tell you who it's for and who it's not. Yeah. But um, it started out as me just drafting. I, I get in these content creation, you know, mindsets, and I and I can write a hundred pages in three days. Um, and I did that, and I was like, you know, I'm just going to ship this thing and sell it for five hundred bucks and ship it. And then I then I started to I got a hold of Podia as a content you know course tool that it can and it's got quizzes it's got video and and I got more serious about building something that hey look this is something where if I was 24 when I was 24 about to do that first self storage facility I didn't know the tax implications I didn't know how leverage worked I didn't know how to talk to a banker I didn't know how to do any of the important shit but I had the drive I had the operational chops so that saved me but I could operate the facility and, and real estate is small business that's a huge part of people don't think about real estate as small business it is small business you need to know how to be efficient how to cut costs and market I knew that part of it. So that saved me, but I didn't know anything else about real estate. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know how leverage worked. I didn't know how to talk to a banker. I didn't know how to talk to a broker. I didn't know how that everything I was doing was selling. I was selling myself in, from every angle. And if I could talk intelligently with people, the deals flow. And I know that now. If I can talk intelligently with a broker, if I can talk intelligently with a seller, if I can talk intelligently with an investor, your world opens up and you can build a real estate company that can make you millions of dollars. I didn't know any of that. So that's what this course is now. It's developed into know, 70 sections and 10 videos and a bunch of screen shares and a bunch of quizzes about, hey, if you take this course, yeah, it'll take you a couple of weeks, but you're going to be able to walk away from this being able to, you know, talk to those people that you need to be able to talk to in an educated way and think about real estate in the right way and, and consider all the things that need to be considered. And it's not just, it's not just one of these things where it's going to take my course and go get rich. It's, I think mostly my course is going to talk people out of real estate right now because it's a scary place to be if you don't have a competitive advantage. For sure. What'd you say the the company you kind of consulted with, Podia? It's a it's an online creation, you know, course platform that allows people to build like a curriculum. So I can I can make it like a say a two thousand word section where you read this, then it's a video to watch, and then I can put a quiz in there and I can like quiz you on what you learned. And it's just a phenomenal resource. How do you spell that? P-O-D-I-A. So my course is nickhuber.podia.com. That's where uh, my that's where my courses are. Awesome. But it's fun. I'm having so much fun and I'm I'm learning a lot too. Because as I get in the weeds, I'm like, oh, do I really understand this the right way? I better talk to Chris or talk to Mitchell Baldridge or talk to whoever I need to talk to to really understand this stuff. Yep. Well, when are you gonna launch it? It's March first. Launching on March first. I'm probably gonna, you know, launch it at two grand or fifteen hundred and then on launch date, it'll be that price. And then every, you know, a day after that, it'll be $500 more. I'm going to raise my prices forever after that. I'm a firm believer in raising your prices if you can't tell. Yeah, yes, you are. And I think a lot of people should be a believer in that too. But it's, it's not for people who are, I might do like a scholarship. I think I'll do like a apply for a scholarship if you just want to use this for educational purposes and you're a student or you don't have any cash. But it's really for people with a hundred grand in the bank and they want to make real estate a part of their investment profile. It's not for people who want to make something from nothing and take a wholesaling course or get a piece of property under contract and try to get a tenant in there. You know, there's no, there's no get rich quick little, little tidbits. I mean, I talk a lot about the opportunities I like and the operational and business side of real estate, but I don't, it's not for everybody. 
Was there an asset class if you had to drop self-storage right now that you would jump into? Ooh, yeah. I love I love like RV parks. I love RV parks because they're small businesses, because you can put some amenities in there and, and some technology and really make them efficient as hell. And because you can depreciate damn near the whole thing because it's all land improvements. So the tax advantages of it are huge. Um, the, the sweatier the business, the better the real estate opportunity, in my opinion. Because... Believe it or not, there's a bunch of 65-year-olds that own almost all the real estate in the world. Almost all of it. And they operate it like, like they did when it was 1985, when they got in the game. So if you can come in there with some operational chops, imagine a bunch of techies, Chris, a bunch of tech guys coming in and competing with us in the real estate world. They would eat our... They would eat our we, we would be, we'd be lagging way behind them. There's just tons, tons and tons and tons of value-add, cost-cutting mechanisms that you can do. So the businesses I love in real estate right now, all the opportunities of the fragmented markets with a bunch of mom and pop operators that don't charge enough money. That's the opportunity that I'm on to in self-storage right now. There's a bunch of self-storage operators that love being 100% full and they are not charging enough cash for their space, period. So I can come in and I can buy a, a, buy a property and raise the rents 20% on day one. And when you raise the rents 20% on day one, you're increasing your net operating income by... 40% and it's 40%. It's worth 40% more as soon as you do that. And we talked about this on the last pod, but if you go raise 20%, like how are you underwriting your expected churn? You know, that's this is something that's evolving and, and why me and Danny every single day wake up with a fire in our hearts to go after more storage. Because six months ago, if we'd have talked, I'd have been up on underwriting 20% moving out. I didn't know. We didn't know. We were guessing. We were underwriting this stuff. And this is another thing about being in real estate is you have to be resourceful as hell because there's no right way to do any of this. You got to make guesses and you got to just make sure that the worst case scenario is not that bad. So we were underwriting 20% of our customers customers moving out. So we bought a property in Gloversville in September. I told you about the glove factory on our last episode. I just bought it. <laughs> and we raised rents 25% on day one. We raised rents 25%. We're like, we don't know what's going to happen. We, we were projecting 25% of our customers moving out and none of them did. Zero. We actually added 11 new rentals and we went from 24... That, this, the people who owned it have been doing 24 grand a month every month for five years. Great business. And now we have done 30 grand a month for the first four years that we... First four months that we've owned this thing. I love it. And so now if you're... Are you still... When you're underwriting, are you still plugging in or have you adjusted? <laughs> well, I keep two models. I mean, I got, I got a model that I show my LPs <laughs> where we're... Where we got the 20% moving out and it's an eight cap going in and Things are looking okay, but me and Danny have a model where nobody's moving out and it's to 10 cap and it's worth it's it, we're we are very, very, very excited about what we're doing right yeah. now. Very excited. Are you gonna keep focusing up on the north in the northeast? Or are you gonna come down south? Like why do you continue to buy up in New York and Pennsylvania? Honestly, if I if I had a regret, it would be the fact that I kind of hamstrung myself geographically. Because up there I have I have some pretty there's some pretty big risk factors around property taxes and around, you know, other population trends, right? <laughs> People are leaving. Um, so prop- between the property taxes and the population trends, I mean, we might be able to get yield now, but our five, 10 year projections are not that, that good. Whereas if I were buying in Georgia and Florida and Texas and Arizona um, and Tennessee and some of these other places, it would look a lot better. We'd pay a little bit of a premium to get that up front. Our year one might not might not look as good, but I think our year five and our investor appetite and our ability to roll up and liquidate, 
I think that's the real power of real estate, right? Is not, I can go around and buy a bunch of $1 million facilities, but as soon as I have $100 million worth, it, I, I can get one 200 basis point cap compression. Oh, yeah. So why don't you? you do you kind of have, is your, your kind of pot committed up there? Or are, you, are you thinking about moving south? We're drinking from a fire hose right now. I mean, we we own we own ten properties and we have twelve more under contract. And I'm very close to signing another LOI today. So, I mean, well, I'm still very early in this journey. I had you know fifteen million dollars worth of storage six months ago, and now I have twenty five. And in a year, I'll probably have sixty. So, I don't want to I don't want to totally blow it out and spend all the money that I have and over leverage myself and grow too fast. So, I I know that what I'm doing right now has the ability by the time I'm 60 years old to make me a billionaire, I know it sounds silly to say, um, I'm just looking at compounding and what we're doing. And if we don't change a whole lot and we just do what we're doing for another five or six years, it's going to be crazy. But, um, so yeah, I'm, there's enough for me there. So I'm not really excited about trying to open up a new branch in West Virginia with a new maintenance guy and all that. Okay. Two things when you, and you might've just answered it, but when you're buying from these kind of, you know, older owners that, haven't been in the game or have been in the game forever doing things the old way. Like what's the most common thing that you're seeing that you're capable of doing the day you take over that increases value? Uh, is that just raise rents? Well, so it's, it's, you talked to me six months ago and it's the fact that we can get rid of that on-site manager and cut 40% off the payroll by putting a software in place that collects all of our rent and, you know, have one, remote employee manage four facilities instead of one full-time employee manage that one and sit on their hands a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, that was our big... So we still do that. So we're kind of cutting from both ends. We're cutting expenses and, and we're we're also just making the customer experience better. Like we have, we have digital ads running, whereas nobody in 10 miles are running digital ads. And we have people can rent a unit from their phone in the middle of the night where none of our competitors allow people to do that. And, and believe it or not, like one seventh of the facility, one seventh of the storage units are rented outside of business hours in America. And we're taking, we're, we have the whole market, we have that whole market to ourselves in all these places. So like, not only can we raise rents on current tenants and we're not raising them, we're not blowing them out. We're not just saying, Oh, you guys are screwed. We're going to raise them 20% above market value. We're finding facilities where the market price is 20% higher. That's what the market is. So we're just raising it up to market rents, but then we're finding that, Hey, we can still lease, lease units because we're the only ones that are taking away a lot of the friction in that leasing process. We're buying from people who have handwritten ledgers, man. They have handwritten ledgers. They're making people drive across town to sign leases. They're answering the phones when they feel like it. It's, it's crazy. They're already full. Imagine if you were a mom and pop unsophisticated operator who didn't have a desire to scale and you lived in you know, Scranton, Pennsylvania and your facility was 100% full and it was putting 10 grand a month in your checking account and you're already a millionaire. You don't care. Are you going to really bust it to get a new tenant when they call you? No. Nope. No, you don't care. Nope. Are the ads you're posting, are those just Google ads? Yeah. Sparefoot is a lead generator in self-storage that we love. It's expensive. They charge us 1.75 times monthly rent. So it's a tough pill to swallow to pay for that, but it's worth every penny because a leased up facility is worth a lot more than an empty facility. Yeah. Um, and you know, in the eyes of a banker, but yeah, we're digital, digital marketing on Google and Bing is, is 80% of it. Okay. Twitter question. Uh, what is the most effective way we say you have 12 deals under contract? Is this from all the letters that you're writing? How are you, how are you, uh, sourcing and getting things, uh, papered up so quickly? Yeah, it's, um, I'd say that when you own a facility in town, when you own a facility in town and you call another facility in that town, 
it lights a fire under who you're talking to. So when, when you're cold calling, this is the problem with a lot of the folks that I consult. When you're, I want to talk briefly about like how to talk to bankers and brokers and sellers because the way that you talk to them matters so much. But like when I, six months ago, when I sent out a ton of letters all over the place and they didn't know who I was, I was just another name at the top of the letter, they threw it on the pile. But now that I own a lot of storage and I can send, and I can send them an email or call them and say, hey, look, we are buying the four property portfolio in your town right now. We have it under contract. We're closing on it. Our, our investors are eager. Do you want to talk? Um, they're going to call me back. So half of them are off-market deals of people that we've called in markets that we already own in, which is amazing because we get more uh, market saturation in that given market. And the other half are from brokers. Yep. The brokers are loving us too. And they're giving us first looks at deals because we're, we're closing them. Who are the, are the brokers with like big nationals? Or are they usually local kind of brokerages? Yeah, yeah, local. I mean, you know this, and a lot of people don't know this, and it's not talked about enough in real estate. And something that I'm learning over the past year, a broker's job is to like get a risk-adjusted return for their seller. Mm-hmm. Everything is risk-adjusted. And you, 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 people don't understand how risky it is to go into contract with somebody. When you go into contract with somebody, you are making a commitment to tie it up for who knows how long, 100 days, 200 days. And if they can't close, if they're not a closer, you have to go back out to market. You've lost all your leverage and you've wasted six months. It is a huge problem. So brokers, people are wondering why brokers aren't calling them back. And it's because they didn't talk to them and they didn't convince that broker that they were a closer in their first 10 seconds. And that broker is not going to take that risk. They're not going to take that risk for their seller. A broker wants to get deals done and a broker wants to, you know, do something with their seller. So when you're talking to them and you're trying to get deals under contract, if you can, in the first 10 seconds, prove to them that you're a closer, they're going to talk to you. If you say anything that makes it sound like you don't know what the hell you're talking about, you're out, you're done. And on the contrary to that, when you do close and you do deliver on your promises, brokers, all they want to do is show you more things because it makes their life easy. It makes your life easy. They don't need to go find 50 buyers if they have one that can consistently close. You just sold a. I, I have never. I never actually sold a big property, Chris. You just sold one. Did you list it or did you self broker it or how did you think about the offers that you got? Because you definitely weigh them differently, right? Yeah. So we we listed with JLL, one of the big boys. They ran a uh, thirty to forty five day marketing process sent out across the country. They tour folks. All along every week, you're getting an update from JLL of who toured, who signed the CA that week, who's in the data room. So the whole time, I'm just looking at the data room, and I'm kind of already starting to Google these companies, some I know, some I've never heard of. Then there's a call Mm -hmm. for offers, which, um, you know, it's like you have a week to submit your offer. Um, then we'll get like, I think we had, uh, I can't remember. We had like 120 people in the data room, 50 tours. I think we had 12 offers and then you can immediately eliminate a couple of the offers that are just way off. And then you'll usually go to your top four or five, do a highest and best situation. Um, and, and part of that highest and best situation, you actually get on a call, the sellers call the buyers. So we would talk to the buyers you would ask them questions. How are you funded? You know, tell me, tell me about, yeah, tell me about how you got to this offer. Do you own any properties in DFW yet? Is this your first industrial deal? You're just trying to get a really good feel for who that buyer is. 
trying to figure out if they're a closer. For sure. And then at the end, everybody submits their offers. You've had a chance to talk to them all and you pick that buyer and it's off to the races. And when a buyer's made it through that many levels of, you know, whatever, to get to the buying position, there's just a lot, you know, JLL isn't going to, you know, help them along again. We probably would never sell to them again. The word gets out into the market that they had it and dropped it and everybody wants to know why. And I'll be the first to raise my hand. We had an $80 million deal. It was a $70 million deal under contract two years ago. To buy? Yep. Um, equity partner fell out. We, we, we beat out Blackstone. We had a whole different way of looking at this deal. But long story short, we did not close. Um, I had to, I spent the next couple months of your life. It was a stressful couple months. I will tell anybody it's the biggest learning lesson I've ever had. Uh, I won't go into all the nuance of why we didn't close, but I will say this for the next two months, I talk to people all the time. What happened? Why didn't you close? Da, 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 da. And it's just amazing. I was shocked how many people were aware that we were under contract and how many people knew the second we dropped it. And so as the stakes get bigger and the and the deals get bigger, we just live in a world where, now where everybody knows what's going on and everybody's kind of watching. And so ultimately, it made our company a much better company, but it was kind of a stain for a second. I was not happy about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the same thing happens on small scale deals. If you're, if you can call a broker and ask the right three or four questions about a deal, um, they know you're serious. Yep. They know you're serious. And if you can talk to them the right way and clear a couple of your major, you know, the deal killers off the bat, and you're going to clear those before you even go under contract. Um, you're going to get, you're going to see a lot of deals, and that's finally happened for us as we're starting to see deals. But that's that's impossible for somebody just getting starting out. It's impossible for somebody starting out to have those intelligent conversations and talk to people the right way and understand the intricacies of what could kill a deal. Um, part of that is, is the goal of my course is to show, show people that. Yep. You're the king of talking about the cash out refi. Once you've executed your business plan, do you have, do you have to have held it for at least a year before the bank will let you refi? Or are you good to go in uh, as soon as you're at a, at a certain level that you're comfortable with? We're seeing some deals that are going to be almost ready to refi now that we bought in the next couple in the last couple months. Um, it's a conversation that we're having with our bankers already, and it's a conversation we're having with our bankers before we even buy. We the, 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 another problem that people when they're when they're getting original debt put on. I think the biggest, most important factor is what type of debt you choose and how you choose it. Yeah. And if you don't talk to your bankers the right way and the expectations aren't clear, then you can be up. You can be in a crappy situation. And I'd say. The number one mistake I made in the early days is having some big prepays on some loans where we had a plan to refi and we didn't even communicate that to our buyers and we didn't get the right kind of loan. But I, I don't know if they'd let us do it under 12 months, but uh, we're going we're gonna to find out here. By the time we talk next, you can ask me the same question and I'll, I'll have an answer for you. For the ones that, that have been baked a year, how long is it taking you from the time you called the bank to the time you're actually closing that loan? Like 60 days or shorter? Well, we're doing New York. We're doing New York and Pennsylvania deals. There's a lot of bureaucracy and things move slow, and you're counting on title work and a lot of things out of your control. And the appraisers are booked out eight weeks. Um, so, I'd say average is eighty days to closing from the time we go under contract. Are the small towns of like Pennsylvania and New York the same types of people that live in like the big cities up in the Northeast? Or are they a little more down to earth, or do you, is that just kind of the whole state of things up there? 
That's a good question. I think it's rural, you know, it's rural areas where people hunt and people ride snowmobiles and people fish. Um, They're definitely nicer, you know, they're nicer than the customer, the student, the student storage business was kind of different though. We were like operating on an Uber model where kids didn't have their suitcases and they had to try to go to sleep without their suitcases. It was very stressful. So some parents turned into monsters when we messed things up. (laughs) This is, this is a little different. (laughs) So people are nicer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. I got some stories of being basically emotionally our, our reps get emotionally and mentally abused by customers. <laughs> tell it's tell one sto- it, it, tell one story. It's a, it's a terrible it is a terrible terrible customer. Another problem with business in general in America is is the fact that Amazon and, and Walmart just let customers abuse them and McDonald's. You could you could buy a Big Mac and buy a Slurpee at McDonald's and you could take a one bite out of the Big Mac, jam it in the McFlurry and hand it back and say, Hey, you gave me, look at this. This is messed up. Look what you did. I want my money back. And guess what they would do? They would return your money because it's cheaper for McDonald's to return your money than it is to build a system for an employee to handle that. Yep. So Amazon will take anything back. I got these idiot friends who order their Halloween costumes on Amazon and send them back. That was the thing to do in college. Ridiculous. Yep. Um, People taking advantage of businesses is a huge problem. And and there was no place that that showed through when there was actual decently stressful situation where like a, a student would have to get a flight and we were late for an appointment or a student would need their, you know, pillows and blankets to go to sleep and our truck broke down and we couldn't get to them until the next day and they had to sleep on a mattress all night. Um, when you do that to a parent who's worth 50 million bucks and they're in their law firm, you know, they, they're a top lawyer in a law firm in New York City, all hell will break loose on you. So I've had my customer service reps call me and say, Nick, I, you know, I, I'm shaking. I don't know what to do. I'm shaking. I'm like, hold, hold on. What's going on? What, what's the matter? And they're like, um, I, I don't know how to explain it, but this person, they, they yelled at me. They screamed at me. They called me a bunch of names. They lectured me for 40 minutes and I don't, I don't know what to do. I just feel insignificant. And I, they like had PTSD from these cruel people. Yep. It was terrible. Oh man. A lot of jerks, a lot of jerks out there in this world. I've I, I learned that a lot of jerks. As soon as you get to a point, as soon as you get to a point in your career when you can have enough leverage where you can tell those people that you don't need them, I don't care what you write online about me. I don't care what kind of Google review you give me. I'm not doing business with you. As soon as you can do that to your partners, your investors, to your customers who are like that, the better your life is going to get. For sure. And I think we're in that, I mean, in that world right now where everybody doesn't want a one-star review on Google, uh, this cancel culture where you do one thing wrong and all of a sudden, you know, it, nobody forgives anybody and everything's taken mm-hmm. out of context. It scares the hell out of people to to fire a customer to, you know, fight back a little. And so you you see these companies just get just brutalized. I don't know if you've ever seen the South Park episode on Yelp, but it's probably the funniest one ever. Basically, Cartman yeah, goes yeah. around town looking for free meals and every time they won't give it to him for free he says he's going to leave a Yelp review. Uh, and he gets a lot of free meals, I bet. He does. He gets anything he wants. It's terrible, man. It's, I, I just, my, I, my, my, my hope is that it starts to shift around a little bit and, and customers don't have that kind of leverage on poor business owners sometime soon. You said that you were hiring somebody. What type of person are you hiring? Like what's the next role? Oh, I'll go deep with you if you want to spend another five minutes here. Let's do I, it. I, I have a, a friend from college who's a badass. Um, I actually, this is one of the biggest mistakes. And I'm, I'm writing about this. It's one of the biggest mistakes I've made in business is back in 2018, when I was ego, I had a lot of ego, a lot of, I can conquer the world, things are going well. 
I convinced him to leave a job to come work for me. And he worked for me for six months. And what I had, the promises I had made and what I could deliver as far as bringing in the deals and financing the deals, I was not able to hold up my end. But, but I, I learned that he is a badass and that he, can, he knows what he's doing. And now we're trying to balance, A, I have to try to sell him again now and coming in and trusting me again that, hey, look, it's real now. Look, like, listen into my banker calls. Look at, this, look at this document. Like, look at all these properties we have in our contract. We're actually doing it. I have to sell him on that, but I also have to pay pay up, you know? Is he going to be like an ops guy or like a business guy? He's going to take my job, yeah. He's, he's going he's gonna to play lead with the bankers. He's going to play lead with the new deals. He's going to play lead with the new due diligence. I'm not going to hand off LP relations with him yet because that's not, that's manageable and I like that part. But um, I'm going to get him to where he can underwrite all the deals and, and do what I do in that business. That's a very, very smart move. You're closing 12 properties. What does we, what does it look like the two weeks after closing? Are all of them kind of shit storms, or some of them are going to be a lot easier than others? We're getting a system down. I mean, when we when we talk to a broker, when we talk to as soon as we go into contract that day, I send a note out to everybody with a timeline. This is the information we need on this day. This is the target closing day. I'm, I'm expecting to have third parties done in this time period. Two weeks out before closing, we need to have two interviews. We need to get updated rent rolls. We're going to put them in our systems. And this stuff is actually like in a an amendment on the on the contract. So like they they understand this stuff before it happens, but we put it in action after you know we go under contract. And this is where my business partner Danny is just a freaking badass. I mean he's he's like Nick, we can't just we can't just keep. You gotta understand, Nick. People don't know how to sell properties. This is complicated. Nobody knows what they're doing. We need to tell them. We need to take the lead. We need to be the boss and show them that we're professional and make it easy and stress free for everybody. And it'll be way easier and stress free for us and our customers. So like. It's in the contract that they need to send out a letter five days before closing to all their customers. You know, they that makes it easy because on closing day, those letters start hitting, the phone calls start coming in, they're going in our system. It's easy. You know what I mean? So yep. it's 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 just been building that system to close properties in our sleep that has been what we're really working on the last three months. Yep. The transacting part of the real estate is uh, it is so important. There's so many little things you pick up on during transacting that makes it makes things that happen before closing easy, things that happen after. I love that you just mentioned that y'all are continuing to dial in that transaction process. It's it's literally everything. And deal killers and due diligence, right? And self-storage is not as bad as a multifamily building where you got to worry about what kind of electrical and what kind of plumbing is in the thing. But we're worried about drainage. We're worried about the roof. We're worried about the slabs. You know, Those are things that we got to cross off very, very early and um, have, have our ducks in a row. Okay, last question on real estate. Guy wrote in and said, uh, buy versus hold forever versus sell in five to seven years. Yeah, well, I'd like to talk to you because you've, you, you've, pro- you've sold some properties and done very, very well. Um, it's easy for me to say, right? I don't, have, I don't have people beating me down trying to give me 10 million bucks. Yep. It's easy for me to say I want to hold forever. It's getting more and more arrogant for me to say that. I'm, I'm a realist. I, I'm, I'm humble enough to know that if somebody offers me a life-changing amount of money, for what I've spent three years to build, it'd be really, really, really hard for me to not take it. And, and I think, honestly, quite foolish. And the truth is, if you're off being offered a life-changing amount of money, it means your LPs are going to absolutely crush it. Yeah, but it also means you have a giant problem. The other side of it is that you have a giant problem. I don't know what I would do if I was handed $10 million today. I would have a problem because nobody can find yield. I'm scared shitless of the stock market. I'd, I'd wish that I owned $14 million for the self-storage instead. Yeah. So right now, my goal, I don't want to sell. 
I, I want to build a company that you know spits off one or two million dollars a year in in cash flow, and it and is operated by a great team, and is maybe worth my GP stake is you know maybe worth ten or twenty million. I, I don't know. These are all. It, it's I seem I sound ridiculous even talking about this because I'm so so early in this. Yeah, but you're you're on track. It's going to happen much quicker than you think it will. So what do you think? I mean, do you do you regret selling any of your properties even when you took a ton of money off the table? Uh, I don't regret it. It's not structured. I think I, I one thing I'm doing right is I'm structuring my deals the right way. I'm structuring them all so that I can hold them for a long time and still get paid along the way. I don't need to sell them to be making money on them. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I don't regret selling. I think... Uh, you know, I might look up in two years and say, yeah, I could have held them for longer and they would be worth more. But I, you know, the, the beauty of being in the business that we're in is one, I didn't sell my whole portfolio. So two, I take the cash, I either 1031 it, which I did. Um, mm-hmm. but if I hadn't, I would be refilled with cash to go become a larger LP in my own deals. That's the beauty of the mm. business we're in. I always have money to, de- I always have a place to deploy money. A lot of people don't, you know, there's a lot of people out there. You, I think you and I have talked about this. They might make, they might sell their business and be worth 500 million and they don't, their net worth has always been in their business. They've never really invested in real estate or deals, they they have no idea what to do with cash. They were money makers, but they weren't investors. We're in this business where we're we're investors and money makers. And so not only do I have deals to deploy my own capital into, but when you're in the deal business, you know a million people that do deals. Like I take for granted that my hundred best friends are all GPs. And that's not because I'm looking to be friends with GPs. You just kind of interact with the people that you're kind of like. And I think you could say the same thing. If I gave you ten million tomorrow, even with the people that you met on Twitter, you'd have places to go put that. Now you might not feel comfortable doing it, but at least you have access. Mm-hmm. So have you ever have you thought about getting away from LPs altogether? I think about that a lot. I'm looking at the cost of my LP capital, and it's high. Yeah, I mean, I think the the the, the dream right is is you know just being able to deal with yourself. Because if you can if you can float that. All you need to do is float that first two years, right? The value add period. Yep. So if you buy 150 million a year, you need 50 million in equity to do that. So if you have 100 million, you can float all your deals, and you can long you can get long term debt on them at two years, get your cash back out, and go do more deals, and then you're growing it all, and you don't have to worry about LPs, and you don't have to worry about anything. It's all you. Right. No, you're right. That's a long, I mean, the, the thought of getting there, it, it's, it's in real estate, it's a slow game unless you actually sell and create a lot of liquidity for yourself. Yeah. The other thing I would mm-hmm. say on the selling part, it's not even necessarily selling, but once you build a company with a lot of team members and you hire these really talented people, there's just, the, what you'll find when you're hiring is there's, there's it's a type, certain type of person that's willing to join and, and be patient and let things build. A lot of the way the industry has been set up over the last 20 years is like buy, fix, flip, buy, fix, flip. And so a lot of people are like, you know, you gave me points to the promote. I want to see a, you know, a payday. And you, a lot of selling pressure for a lot of companies isn't coming from me wanting to sell. It's what's right for the whole collective group. And that's where my partner and I started having conversations of, 
okay, well, maybe if we don't want to sell, but it's the right thing to do for the team and the right thing to do for LPs, is we recap it or we offer to buy their shares out at at an agreed value. That way we can hold it. Everybody can get paid. And maybe once a year, you kind of, you send an email to your LPs or to your employees and say, this is what the property we believe is worth. We're willing to buy shares out at this pr- at this value this year, less 6%, because that's the cost of kind of selling real estate. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And you give everybody kind of a once a year liquidity option. Now, if if you have an LP that's worth 10 million bucks and they want to take it, that's a little different. But for the smaller investors, like being able to offer an opportunity to take some chips off the table, one, it doesn't have to be just our money that's buying it all. There could be new investors willing to come in and take you know, some chips off of somebody else's table. And that's what we're seeing a lot of right now. Uh, you know, a lot of folks, not just at our company, just in general, is how can you offer some type of secondary market for shares in a deal? You know, I'm very interested in that as well. And I think, you know, again, LPs, uh, the great LPs don't want to get out. If things are performing, they don't. But I think it would be interesting if more GPs sent just an annual thing that just said, look, at the end of every year, we're going to close our books on the 15th. We're going to send out a value to you on the 15th. And you have until February 1st to elect whether you want to sell down a portion of your shares. Maybe you don't allow them to sell at all, but you could sell mm-hmm. X amount. And then from the time we hear your commitment on February 1st, we have 30 days to close you out. And that can be with Nick, your money, or you could go back to the well and sit, go to LPs and say, hey, here's here's a property. We've owned it two years. It's crushing it. We have shares. Somebody's willing to sell. Does anybody want in? Yeah, it's one email to get that done for... It seems like it, it'd be a very, very easy process if you have excess capital like there is in the market right now. The problem is the problem with that would be, Chris, is that if you know, it, it's always... LP capital turns off like a spigot sometimes. That's right. No, it does. So if you, if you make those bets and then we hit a deep, dark recession, I guess that would affect the value, right? Yeah. So, so well, the value would be would, would have gone down. You value the property differently and you're only valuing it once a year. It's not like you're valuing it every day. So you get one time a year mm-hmm. to value it. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love that. I love that. I'm going to do that. Okay, buddy. That's all I got. I love it. This is fun. I could feel like we could talk for three hours. We could talk for three hours. Maybe we'll do a part three in a couple months. Let's do it. Yeah, things are changing in my world really fast. So I appreciate everybody listening. And, and I'll say a disclaimer again that hey, I, I, I act like an expert. I talk like an expert. And I do that to pull out polarizing opinions and learn a lot on the internet. I am eager to change my mind. And you should not take what I say as the only way to do something. There's a lot of people that are a lot smarter than I am. Make sure you leave that in. Don't don't cut that out, Chris. We will, we will leave that in. And I would just say... Um, Nobody on the internet has a gun to their head to listen or follow you. And everybody now has an opinion. But as somebody who, you know, again, I'm relatively young and, and I don't know shit either. But I would say the, the, the net of what you do on the internet is a huge positive. Um, the, everything can be taken out of context and everything else. But keep doing exactly what you're doing because the majority of people turn into whatever you called it a, a fortune cookie person. Mm-hmm. And it's refreshing to see someone that's willing to be, you know, super open and and take the heat and you handle it really, really well. It's, it's honestly gives a lot of people probably more encouragement to be a little more honest. I appreciate it. Yeah. My goal is to get more people who are not afraid of a prick Huber uh, account. Going up. <laughs> 
the, no, pic- the, the, the picture of the profile, he kind of nailed that picture too. Oh, he, it's a great account. I, I kind of chuckle. He even did the cigar smoking picture. Like I did. <laughs> he, 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 uh, he, he's pushing my buttons. He's trying to, he's trying to get to me. I'm not going to let him know. I closed, I, I closed my biggest deal today for $600,000. <laughs> He's got a picture of him smoking a cigar. Yeah, he's he's, he's like that, that's me three months ago. I know. Oh, that's funny. But yeah, I think the way that people can reach out is uh, uh, you know nickhuber.podia.com is the p o d i a is where my course will be on March first, and I'll be discounted that day for probably the only only period of time ever. So uh, thanks for help. Thanks for helping me promote that, Chris. I know it's kind of unique to do that, but I thought Real Estate God was awesome on here too. What he does is really great, and uh. I'm glad you're leaning into helping us with this online education stuff because I know it's kind of got a greasy name to it because of the Ty Lopez and the Grant Cardone type stuff. No, dude, it's all good. And it's where it's where the world's headed. Appreciate it. Thanks again, man. I, I'm honored to be a part of what you're doing. I, I, I look up to you in a major way and you're, you're a badass at what you do. So keep, keep up the great work. Same thing, brother. Uh, I'll talk to you soon and, and always appreciate your time. This was awesome. All right, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Okay, buddy. Bye. Bye. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.